Welcome to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We're glad that you could join us again this week as we continue our journey through the book of Ephesians. This week we are on lesson number 11, getting close to the end, practicing supreme loyalty to Christ. So we're going to delve into some interesting verses today, not a long passage, but a very important one. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we ask that you'll be with us and guide our study in this chapter of the book of Ephesians today. We ask that you'll bless us and help us to understand some significant relationships better than we did before. We ask that you'll bless our time and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're happy to be back again with the author of this quarter's Sabbath School lesson, Dr. John McVeigh. He's the president of Walla Walla University. John, welcome back. Glad to be at the table. Back at the table with you, Eric. Back at the table. And this week, it's not a long passage. It's no, a, it's nine whole verses. Nine whole mm-hmm. verses. It is. And, uh, and yet a significant nine verses. Significant uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, it, uh, the last, last part of this has to do with the relationship between slave masters and slaves, or slaves and slave masters. And uh, that's, that's a, a challenging issue to think through. So this has the potential to be very, very interesting. It does. Well, why don't we begin by reading just a few of the verses here and then starting to to unpack and see what some of these themes are. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 6, and we're looking together at verses 1 through 9, and Paul begins with these words. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Then he quotes one of the commandments, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So if we wanted to summarize this week's lesson, these whole nine whole verses, how might we summarize it? And then I want to start digging into uh, this, this relationship or this element, this aspect that Paul talks about here with, with children. What was it like to be a child in the first century and what would Paul have expected his readers to understand living in that day that maybe we're not getting today? So what, what's, what's the general thrust of this section? And then what about children? Wow. The general thrust in the case of, of children is what you would expect. It's, it's uh, Paul's advice to children is obey your parents. <laughs> and there's a biblical mandate to do, fo- do so. And God will bless you through your obedience to your, your, your parents. Uh, in the case of slaves, of course, it gets nuanced toward that that relationship. Uh, and slaves are, as you as you can see in verse five, are to obey. Uh, children are to obey. Slaves are to obey their earthly masters. Uh, but throughout the few verses there on slavery, starting with slaves themselves and moving briefly to the slave owners. Paul has some um, advanced ideas that he's wishing to share with them, and he's trying to, as we suggested in an earlier segment, fill in, infill, the husks of the first century relationships, including the one between slaves and slave masters, with the values of the gospel. And uh, so he sows the seed of real transformation here in uh, pondering how the values of the gospel actually inform these relationships. All right, so that gives us an, an overview of this section. Mm-hmm. What about children? What was that? What would that have been like back in well, Paul's day? Well, with a little bit of reading and study, we can begin to figure out the contours of what it meant to be a child back in that time. 
and um, part of it is that it, it's a very different society than some of the societies that, that uh, people live in today. This is not an advanced place. Adva- it's a sophisticated city. If it, Ephesus is a f- sophisticated place, and yet it has a kind of 97% to 3% split, judging from uh, the remains and, and documents that are left behind. So 3% live pretty well off. Uh, when you go to Ephesus, Eric, I don't think you've been there yet. Not yet. Yes, we it's on need my to, to-do list. We need to get you there. We, at least it needs to be on your bucket list for the time That's being. That's right. But when you, when you go there, uh, in, in recent years, they're ex- excavating something called the terrace houses, and these are homes that are on a, on a hillside there. At least last time I was there, were, were covered with some protection. And you go in under the cover, and you, and you look at these places. And these are quite large, uh, very beautiful, well-decorated homes uh, with, with all of the aura of, of wealth about them. Uh, but that kind of thing is 3% of the population. 97% of the population live just at or mostly below the level of sustenance, what we might call the poverty line. And uh, so those, that 97%, those, 90, those people in the 97% live very different lives. And some of the features about the first century that are traumatic from a child's point of view is that uh, uh, infant mortality was very high. And then the child death rates were, were extreme, too. It was somewhat unusual to live beyond five years of age and so on. So the children felt, I'm sure, at, at, at risk. Uh, life, was, life was tenuous. And when you add that, uh, when you add some of the customs of the age to that, it becomes really challenging. Uh, a father had the legal right to expose a newborn. And children are expensive, and they often exercise that right, especially if it was a female child. And they would expose them to, to uh, the elements, and the infant would either die a- out in the open or be a- adopted by someone, usually a slave trader, who would raise that child until a point when they could be sold. So that's a, that's a fairly grim context for being a, a child, and uh, it, was a, it was a daunting assignment to be a child in ancient Ephesus and any, any ancient city. So n- not exactly something that you would desire for yourself. I mean, everybody gets to be a child at some point, but uh, if we could choose a time period in which to be a child and a, a place in which to be a child, it doesn't sound like this would be a preferred time or place. No, and, and of course, a significant portion of the population would be slaves. And slave children were especially vulnerable because adding to all those other things, which they would have had more than a lion's share of the risk in, uh, they also faced the threat that their their owner, the owner, so-called owner, could sell them at any time. They could be separated from a nuclear family and so on. And that's, uh, that's again, really, really tough set of societal circumstances and context for children in the time. And, and with that context, Paul kind of, he talks about the responsibilities here of, of parents to children. Yes, he does. Maybe there's a little bit of hope in, in, the, mm-hmm. in the biblical perspective mm-hmm. on these things. Yeah. So in verse 4, when he, when he turns from talking to children and he turns to fathers, now he actually refers to parents, which would include mother and father in verse 1, but 
the second half is addressed only to fathers. And it's interesting how he begins. Do not provoke your children to anger, which is suggestive that that was probably what some Christian fathers were doing. They were they were provoking their sons or their daughters to anger. And Paul says, you don't, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Uh, fathers had unbridled, unbounded authority. They could, they could do most anything they wanted with their own child. Now, in Paul's day, those prerogatives were being bounded a bit by public opinion. But still, in terms of their legal rights and so on, they could pretty much do what they wished with their son or their daughter. And Paul is again trying to restrict this this patriarchal authority and, and, and bound it. Don't provoke your children to anger. And the alternative that he gives is to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, Lord in Ephesians seems to always refer to the Lord Jesus. So this is, is Jesus. So bring them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. So is this the the instruction that comes from the Lord, from the Lord Jesus? They're, they're, they're to train them up to raise them in Christian faith, the most significant overarching figure in these relationships is the Lord, is Jesus. And it, it speaks here of raising them up or bringing them up in the, uh, in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Uh, you used a moment ago the word fear, but uh, I, I'm sensing that fear is more of a uh, uh, reverence of the Lord rather than, than what sure. we typically today consider yeah. fear. Yeah, we, can, we sometimes translate that term awe. Yes, yeah, I think awe is a much... Uh, a much better or more easily understood uh, word for us. In verse 5, we make a transition here from from the relationship between fathers and children or parents and children mm-hmm. to bond servants. Sure. What, what do we see happening now as, as Paul makes this transition? Yeah. Uh, some of the translations do use the term bond servants. Uh, if you if you look at this issue closely, this is this is the standard word for slave. It's just a uh, Douloi, slaves, and it's probably better to stick with that. Some of the translation teams uh, use bond servants. The ESV, uh, when it came out, had slaves, and now they've they've switched to bond servants. And they do that in an attempt to think about a specific set of servants, house slaves. House slaves could be treated relatively well, and so. Some argue that the term bond servants is more accurate in that context than slaves. However, if you look at the whole, the whole arena of, of slaves and slavery in the Greco-Roman world and in a city like Ephesus and so on, it had a lot of very, very grim realities to it. Um, even, even if they could save up as slaves, could, could actually own things. There's records of slaves owning other slaves, oddly enough. Uh, if they could save up the wherewithal, the, the finances, uh, perhaps placing it uh, in trust at the uh, at Artemis's temple, which was a, also a banking center, they'd save their money up. They'd, they'd keep it there, and finally they'd get the amount of money that they needed to buy their freedom, so that they could be manumitted or freed from slavery. Now, most of us, when we think about that process, think, "Hooray, it's done." They've won their freedom. Now they're free people. But it's a little different than that in the first century context. First of all, for 
for uh, for men and women, the the life expectancy was was very short, uh, about forty for men, about thirty for women, and most manumissions occurred about the time someone was 30, and that signs, oh, they've got lots of life left, but not in that context. That's kind of end-of-life end of stuff. The other thing is, is even if they were manumitted, they didn't gain freedom as you and I understand freedom to be. Uh, they become a freed person, uh, which is an interesting status, a freedman, which isn't quite a slave, but's a long way from being free. The slave owner actually had the right to continue to ask ask them to do certain things. They they still had a, a relationship of obedience to the former slave master. And if the slave master wished, he could can't simply cancel the manumission and and recall the slave into service. So, you know, it's a it's a complex, difficult setting. So it's not exactly what, what you and I might consider to be free no, as it were. No, as and, it were. And all of this that we're talking about here in terms of the first century context, Eric, makes, makes us a little nervous about some of the uses we make of this set of passages. Uh, we, as Christian believers reading our Bibles, tend to read the part about uh, wives and husbands and the part about children and parents and read it quite straightforwardly as applying today just as it did back then. But part of what we have to remember is we have to develop a way of interpreting the whole set of rules of the Christian household. And we can't treat one part one way and then the part about slavery a different way, especially when the autocratic powers that were accorded to the husband, father, and and slave master colored these other relationships as well. The slave master, who was a father, could have a, a slave, almost a slave-like relationship with his children, could dominate his wife in a similar fashion. And so we have to be very careful that we tease out Paul's efforts to breathe life and grace and hope into these relationships. And that's what we're going to be doing in the second half of our program today, digging more deeply into the relationship between parents and children and also slaves. So this is an interesting subject this week. I want to encourage you, make sure that you pick up the companion book to this quarter Sabbath school lesson. If you want to understand a little bit more deeply these relationships that we're talking about today, this is the resource that you need. You want to pick this up at itiswritten.shop. Itiswritten.shop. It's the companion book to this quarter's Sabbath school lesson on Ephesians by John McVeigh. We are going to be coming back in just a moment as we continue looking at this very interesting subject. We'll be right back. I know your works and where you dwell. These are some of Christ's first words to the ancient church of Pergamos. Pergamos was filled with pagan temples, one of which was dedicated to a god whose symbol was a serpent. So what did Jesus have to say to early Christians in Pergamos? You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. But I have a few things against you. What pitfalls could a church that had been so recently delivered from persecution stumble into? And what does Christ promise to those who overcome? Find out by watching The Seven Churches of Revelation, Pergamos, and learn how you can be among the overcomers. 
The Seven Churches of Revelation, Pergamos, brought to you by It Is Written TV. Thank you for remembering that It Is Written exists because of the kindness of people just like you. To support this international life-changing ministry, please call us now at 800-253-3000. You can send your tax-deductible gift to the address on your screen, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Thank you for your prayers and for your financial support. Our number again is 800-253-3000. Or you could visit us online at itiswritten.com. Welcome back to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We're continuing looking at practicing supreme loyalty to Christ this week. This is lesson number 11. We're talking about children and parents uh, slaves and and owners. Uh, John, I want to come back to something. We've been talking about slaves, but I want to bring us back to something here for just a moment and then back to slaves again because it is rather interesting. But when we talk about relationships between parents and children, Paul is is doing a masterful job in this book of helping us to see the relationship that we need to have with Christ. Mm-hmm. What do we What do we learn about relationships based on what he's talking about here between parents and children and how we ought to have a relationship with Jesus? You know, I think uh, the, the simple, straightforward instructions that Paul gives harbor some, some profound, uh, a profound principle. So uh, Paul says to children, children, obey your parents. And you might have expected full stop, period. But he says, in the Lord. Again, signaling, much as we saw in in Paul's counsel to Christian wives, the relationship with your parents is crucial and important if you're a child, and you need to honor and respect and obey them. But that's to be done in the Lord. In other words, there is a relationship that is yet higher on the scale, uh, and that's the child's relationship with the Lord. And what I see Paul doing in that little phrase in the Lord is drawing these children in as them, as themselves believers, honoring their relationship with the Lord, uh, cultivating that relationship, respecting it, respecting them as members of the church community. And we don't know precisely what the ages of the group is that, that Paul's referring to. Uh, the, the term child could could stretch over some some time even until the father's death you know so if you had a long-lived father you could be a child for for a while uh, in this context because of Paul's remarks about the instruction that is needed to them these are younger children who who need careful instruction and, and teaching so they're probably children much as we would we would think of today and yet Paul kind of draws them in to the circle of respected members of of the, the Christian family and, and honors their relationship with the Lord. And, and I think that that's, that's wondrous and that's tender. And it reminds me of a narrative in the Old Testament that uh, I see a, a similar thing happening. 1 Samuel chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 21. You'll remember the story of Samuel as a lad, as a boy, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the tent, in the tabernacle, right? In the in the in the worship space that they had at that point, and uh, he's serving under a priest named Eli, right? And one night Samuel is awakened 
by his name being called and he rushes to Eli and he says, I'm here, you, you called me. You remember the story. Yes. And this happens repeatedly. And finally, uh, Eli gets it. Finally, Eli gets it. Uh, then Eli perceived, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 8. Then Eli perceived that the Lord, and, and you'll notice that's in small caps, it's all in capital letters, so it's Yahweh. So he... Eli comes to the realization that Yahweh is calling the boy. Now, it's curious because Eli is serving in the, the tabernacle, in the tent. He's, he's serving there. It says in, in verse 1, Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of, of Eli. And it also says that Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, verse 3. So, he knows about the Lord, but it gives us the, the sense here that he did not yet know the Lord, and yet the Lord speaks to him. And there comes that holy moment when Eli perceives Yahweh is calling the boy. And Eli acts on that and honors that and respects that, even when God eventually connects with Samuel shares a, a, a judgment message on Eli and his house, and Samuel shares that message with Eli, and Eli says, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. Uh, this is a story about someone, Eli in this case, who comes to recognize that moment when Yahweh speaks to a boy. And it strikes me that particularly those of us working with children and young adults and so on, we, we ought to be attentive to the relationship between God and that young person or that child. We ought to be ever watchful for that moment when Yahweh speaks to that one. That's a sacred moment. We ought to honor it and respect it, much as Paul suggests in Ephesians and as is reflected in the story of Samuel and Eli. So Paul talks about that relationship, and we, we almost wish that he had spent more verses talking yes. about that. But yes. he does make some profound observations mm -hmm. and give some great counsel in those few verses. Uh, but then, as we've mentioned before, he talks about these bond servants or slaves, as it were. Um, what kind of advice, what kind of counsel does Paul give to slave masters? And, and again, how do we take that from the first century and bring it down sure. here much further down the line? So here would be my summary of what he says to slaves, and he says it to them uh, over and, and over again in various ways. Uh, he says to them, make a grand substitution. Substitute Christ for your slave master. Serve your real master, Christ. Uh, in, in a sense, he says, forget about the master in the flesh. Uh, Put Jesus in that place and serve him with full heart and do great work. But it doesn't have to be directed to the slave master, the earthly slave master. Direct it to Jesus. Make a great substitution. Put Jesus in the place of your slave master. Fascinating strategy, isn't it, for, uh, for working in this environment and infusing these difficult, challenging what, from our perspective, we would certainly call immoral relationships 
someone owning another one. It's trying to infill the husks of those relationships with the values of the gospel. There are certainly slaves today. Many of us may not interact with them on a daily basis or at least recognize that we are. But there are employer-employee relationships. Yes. Do we do we take those and just kind of bring the same concepts over? How does that all work? Well, I think there's some 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 danger in doing so, or maybe we maybe I would say we have to be very careful in doing so because uh, as Christians we have we have a long history with these words about slavery, and uh, we want to be careful. There's there's a whole there's a whole history of Christians being engaged in, in helping to create a better atmosphere for employees or workers to do, to do their work, to have rights and work days of a reasonable length and, and, and all the rest, uh, child labor laws and, and so on. Most all of that stream of legislation and societal change is rooted in people who believed in God and believed in the immorality of of slavery and so on. So we want to be careful then that we honor that history and that we don't just port over these words about slaves and slave masters into our time and, and, and potentially port over some assumptions about employers and how they can behave that Paul would not really have agreed, agreed with in his time and given this stream of of legislative societal work based on Christian principles, we would certainly not agree with. So we have to be a little bit careful about it. But having said that, I think there's something to be heard here. Uh, We all probably have some nagging, egotistical, overbearing people in our lives. And I think Paul's good counsel to these slaves, substitute Jesus for the slave master, probably fits in those contexts. In other words, you Put Jesus in that place and do what you need to do for Jesus and uh, see how that impacts that egotistical, overbearing, dominating person in your life. Yeah, it sounds like Paul has good advice, not just for first century folk, but for, for us today as well. I think it does take us a little extra work with, with passages like these, but uh, it's, it's there. The, the truth is there. The word for our time is there. Absolutely. And we trust that you have been blessed by our study this, uh, this week as well. We've looked at the relationship between parents and children. We've looked at the relationships between slaves and masters. And ultimately, what we're looking at is the relationship that Jesus wants to have with each and every one of us. And that only comes to pass as we choose to have that relationship with him. He wants to have it with us, but we have to choose to have that relationship with him as well. And as we continue looking at the book of Ephesians, we will continue to see how we can have that relationship by the choices that we make. And that all comes from a better understanding of Christ and his character. We're looking at the book of Ephesians this quarter, Paul's incredible story, letter, to help us understand the Lord better. God bless you. Have a wonderful week, and we'll look forward to seeing you again next time on Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written.